Welcome back to the program, folks. Uh, feels like we've been releasing episodes at a pretty decent clip lately, which is good, I guess, if you're trying to grow something. And God knows we could use a bit of a growth spurt over here at RBW headquarters. But enough about us. Uh, today's show is with West Hartford-raised and Brooklyn, New York-based multi-potentialite Howard Fishman. Our conversation touches on Howard's many creative interests and pursuits. However, at the heart of it is Howard's wonderful new book, In Labor of Love, to anyone who ever asks the life, music, and mystery of Connie Converse. As Howard mentions in our chat, it's a book about polymath and musician Connie Converse that is part biography and part investigative personal journey. All I know is that it's a fascinating look at a fascinating person, and I tore through its 585 pages at light speed. The mystery portion of the subtitle refers to Connie's vanishing without a trace in 1974, never to be heard from again. But the book is so much more than that undeniably intriguing hook. If you'd like to forget about the world for a while, then dive headlong into this beautiful piece of work. You can learn more about Howard at howardfishman.com. And once again, the book is called To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. And speaking of books that I love, please grab a copy of The Moron at the end of this book, Andrew's new collection of memoir-style short stories over at moronbook.com. Um, all right, folks, uh, please follow the show wherever you listen. And let us know what you think by leaving a rating or a review. It really does help, and we appreciate it. And thank you once again to Howard. And the song you'll hear in this episode is Talking Like You, parentheses, Two Tall Mountains, and parentheses, by the inimitable Connie Converse. Enjoy and take care of yourselves and each other. In between. Sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling In the yard I keep a pig or two They drop in for dinner like you used to do I don't stand in the need of company With everything I see Talking like you Up that tree there's sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling You may think you left me all alone But I can hear you talk without a telephone I don't stand in the need of company With everything I see Talking like you See that bird setting on my windowsill Will he say in Whippoorwill All the night through just whippoorwill all the night through. In between two tall mountains there's a place they call lonesome. Don't see Uh, so I am here with uh, Howard Fishman. Uh, Howard is an author, musician, composer, a playwright, and a culture writer based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, his latest project is a book entitled To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. 
Howard has kindly agreed to discuss the book with me, um, along with a few other topics. So thanks for joining me, Howard. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so I just listed a bunch of uh, uh, things that you take part in there. Uh, alongside being an author, you're a uh, you know you're a playwright and a composer and a musician, etc. Um, I I just wanted to know, um, you know, one might think that you were maybe surrounded by books and instruments and, and, and records as a child. Was that, was that the case for you? Was I surrounded by those things as a child? I was surrounded by, um, as a child, I, I was a collector of things. Uh, so I was surrounded by comic books, coins, stamps, baseball cards, uh, books. And then, yeah, later on, I guess, uh, records, CDs, tapes, musical instruments. Um, so I was surrounded by a lot of things. You're right, Glenn. Yeah. So so creativity was sort of a big thing right from the get-go for you. Yes. I've been lucky to have that be a big part of my life. Yeah. And uh, you grew up in Hartford, is that right? Yeah, West Hartford. West Hartford, mm-hmm. okay. Right. And you spent your whole childhood there, is it? I did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, now, uh Like, again, I do have, uh, I will get to uh, some questions about the book. I just kind of wanted to start with just a few biographical things just to set a bit of a, a bit of a foundation. Um, So as I just, as I mentioned in the intro, yeah, you've got a lot of irons in the fire. Um, I think I heard you say one time too, that like, you know, you could just play like 20s and 30s standards for uh, rich white people, which I found that to be a pretty funny line. Um, but, you know, you wanted something more. Um, so I was just kind of interested, like, what drives that creativity? Like, would you, do you consider yourself to be creatively restless? Or maybe a better way to put it, like, what would happen to you or or or, or what would happen if you stopped making things? Oh, I, I don't think I'd be very happy i don't think i'd really be able to exist very well if i stopped making things um that's really the only thing i know how to do well uh so yeah that would be a tough situation for me yeah so um your your mind is kind of always um in that mode in that creative mode well uh yeah i i guess that's just the way that i interact with the world most successfully is through creative expression. Uh, when I try to interact with the world through other modes of expression, it doesn't always go so well. Right, right. Yeah, I uh, I, I get that too. I I, I think I think uh, I relate to that as well. Like it, it's kind of a way to connect with the world, um, maybe from a bit of a distance or something. Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting way to think about it from a bit of a distance. Um, I don't, I don't know. I guess uh, other kinds of interactions for me just tend to be less successful. Uh, Even doing things like this, you know, doing an interview, I uh, trip over my words or I don't articulate really what I want to say. I would much rather be writing a song or playing a song or, painting a picture or working on a essay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually, I've heard a lot of writers say stuff like that. Like they feel a lot more comfortable, like on the page, um, rather than talking, you know, it seems to be a pretty common thing. Yeah. Which isn't to say that I'm not very grateful for you having me on and, uh, and, uh, uh, and wanting to talk to me. Uh, it's just that I, I, it's not one of the things that I'm best at. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I think I relate to you on, um, which is kind of weird because I talk to people all the time, but I think it's a way to um, get over my fears too, in a way. So, <laughs> um, all right. So uh, I think I heard you mention that you're based in Brooklyn now, right? Yes. Yeah. Do, do you find that a, like a pretty creatively stimulating place to live? Well, New York City is one of the you know cultural capitals of the world. So on any given night, I can go and hear the best music, see the best plays, go to the best museums, eat the best food, go to see the best art. I mean, 
it's pretty unparalleled in terms of uh, creative opportunities. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think that's kind of what I was getting at. Like I, I know you're um, you make a lot of stuff, but you also consume a lot of art when you get the chance. I do. Yeah, art, art is pretty much all that I consume, other than food and oxygen. Yeah. Um, I don't. I'm not a consumer of other things. I, I don't buy things. I don't buy clothes. I don't buy cars. I don't buy, um, you know, uh, I, I don't have much in the way of uh, material things other than the things that I need for my practice. Yeah. So you just sort of buy experiences, I guess, in a way. That's a nice way to to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do, like, do you go into Manhattan? much or does Brooklyn kind of have a self-contained scene that that is is good oh no I, I'm in Manhattan pretty frequently uh yeah I mean uh, there's there's a lot going on there so I I avail myself of it yeah okay um so you did uh, just a minute ago you mentioned songwriting um do you um do you still uh write songs on a regular basis do you, do you still apply that trade well songwriting for me is uh it's an interesting i know i'm not unique in this but i i when it comes to writing songs i'm mainly a receiver whereby a, a, a melody will appear in my brain all of a sudden i don't sit down and try to think of a melody they just come to me and so i record them and then later on, I try to add some words to them that seem like they're okay. Uh, and that's the work part of it. But the actual composing part of it is more, uh, it comes from the ether. It's not work that I sit down and do. Oh, wow. So, yes, I, I still get, I still am receiving melodies. It, it happens all the time. Yeah. 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 I've heard that said too. Like some people have said they're kind of like a vessel for. Something yeah. that kind of moves through them or, or, or something, yeah. Um, so you're more of a, would you consider yourself, you know, a, a stronger musician or a stronger lyricist? Well, the the uh, the gift that I have been given is, is one of being a receptor. Uh, so I feel very fortunate in, in that respect. Uh, the lyric part of it is more the the craft that I, uh, that I have to do in order to bring the song to, uh, fruition. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where the talent part of it lies, but it may be some combination of those two things. Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks for, uh, for indulging me there. I just wanted to mention a, a few other of your endeavors before I got to the book. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, we will get into some Connie Converse stuff here. Um, and, and listen, I know you've done a huge press cycle, um, so I'm probably not going to have any original questions here. Um, but my aim is just kind of, I just wanted to highlight the work and make a few more people aware, try to get the book in more people's hands, because um, I just think it's a great story and... Um, um, how did you come to how did you come to the book, Glenn? How did, how did it make its way to you? Uh, well, I so I was vaguely aware of. Um, I hope I don't butcher the title. Is it so sad, so lovely? Is that how sad, how lovely? How sad, how lovely? Sorry, yeah, which came out. I was vaguely aware of that. I think you know, just by visiting various music blogs and stuff, I came across that. So I I knew the name, but I hadn't really explored the work much, and then. Um, I don't exactly know how the book came into my, uh, into my conscience. I, I, I don't really know where I came across it. I just, I mean, I'm always sort of looking for stuff to, to read and it, it might've been in, you know, some publication I was reading, uh, promotional material or something. I'm, I listen to a lot of podcasts too. So I just, I think I just heard about it, but, um, but for those that aren't, uh, for those listening that aren't like completely aware, I just wanted to offer like a, just a brief primer here, uh, just so everyone's on the same page. So, um, we're talking about Connie Converse. Um, she, uh, was born in 1924 in, 
Laconia, New Hampshire, and she was raised in Concord, I believe. Um, she uh, grew up in a pretty s- strict religious family. Um, she was quite academically inclined, got a scholarship to Mount Holyoke College, um, subsequently dropped out and found herself in New York City where she tried to, uh, I guess, start a music career, um, which was ultimately unsuccessful. She uh, ended up leaving New York City in 1961, moved to Ann Arbor, um, worked in Ann Arbor, uh, and she lived near her brother Phil, I believe, uh, for those years. And ultimately in 1974, she uh, kind of disappeared uh, under mysterious circumstances, and that is the crux of the book. Uh, sorry, I just had to get that out of the way, just in case anybody was totally unaware. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask, Howard, was just the steps that you took in, because I know it's not just the book. You you know, you did a concert and a and a uh, you know a play, and you produced an album, a magazine article. Like, can you just talk about the order that that kind of went in sure um i first heard connie converse's music in 2010 um shortly thereafter i started contacting members of her family and tracking down friends of hers um and uh reporting the information that i was gathering at concerts that i was doing at which i would play her songs and also talk about the research I was doing. That grew into a play called A Star Has Burnt My Eye, which had a number of workshop performances uh, before debuting at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, also known as BAM, in 2016 as part of the Next Wave Festival. During that process, I also produced an album of Converse's never-before-heard art song catalog written for a classical piano and voice uh, that was um, sung and played by your fellow Canadians, Charlotte Mundy and Christopher Goddard on on an album called Connie's Piano Songs. And right around the time of doing my play, I wrote an essay for The New Yorker called Connie Converse's Time Has Come. And uh, that gained some new notoriety for her and ultimately led to my book contract and the book came out just this year, a few months ago. Um, but the book, I, I really began writing. I, I began the process of what became the book, which is called to anyone who ever asks early on, I would say in early 2011, I knew that I was writing a book. So all these other projects were just sort of outgrowths of that main objective. Right. Okay. And this is your first, the first book you've ever written, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, I think I read that uh, you, so you were shopping around for editors and agents, I think uh, the story goes, and and somebody told you it would be prudent to like write a magazine article to get some like exposure for for what you were writing about? Yes, because I I was proposing to write a very long book about a person that nobody had ever heard of before. So... Agents said, book agents said, you're out of your mind. No publisher will publish this. Um, You have to get some more recognition for her first so that there's some kind of uh, demand for this book. So that's, yes, that led to the New Yorker essay and other things that I wrote about her. Yeah, yeah. It it was kind of amazing to me too, like to to hear that your article, like, I don't know, like, I, I think about, like, submitting an article to the New Yorker and thinking, like, wow, like, that, you know, and I, I don't know, I just, it's kind of great that it was, it was accepted and, 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 and they ran it sort of right off the bat, you know. It's absolutely miraculous, and the only thing that I can say in the way of explanation is that there seems to be something about Connie Converse's story that makes these kinds of things happen. Um, or at least in this cycle of her story in which she's finally starting to get the recognition that she's deserved for so long, it seems that there, there has been a, a hand sort of guiding me uh, along the process, an unseen hand of which I have no real part. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and that, and so after that article though, you've went on like, 
you've went on to write uh, quite a bit for different publications, right? Was that like your first article that was kind of the jumping off point to write for other magazines? Yeah, that was my first significant essay okay. for any publication. Okay. And uh, then I started publishing essays about other things for the New Yorker and, and other publications as well. And I, I'm, I still do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like I think if I was, I mean, uh, you know, running the New Yorker and somebody came to me with that story, I would be pretty compelled too. I, I would think, you know, yeah, I think we better, uh, I, I think this might be a, a, a good piece to run. So, <laughs> um, so I heard you say, you know, you've, you've, I've heard you tell this a few times, but you know, you said when you first heard her music, it sounded like you had heard it a million times before, but it also sounded uh, new. I was just wondering, this might be a difficult question to answer, but I was just wondering if you could like dig into that just a little bit more. Like there are a lot of people in this world that can sing and play the guitar. Um, but like there are f very few people that can like stop a listener in their tracks, like Connie's music did for you. And, and I was just wondering like, what were the specific qualities that her music possessed that, really sort of did it for you? Like, um, I, I don't know if, if, if that's an easy question to answer, but. It's not an easy question to answer, but I also don't want to cop out by just saying, oh, I don't know. It's just something I can't express. Um, there is something in the combination of the timbre of her voice, the way that she plays the guitar, the way that she constructs her songs that sound like they have, ingredients from all these different strains of American music, but are not really part of any of them. Um, and yeah, the delivery of all this together is in incredibly compelling to me. Uh, and it, it, to me, it represents a, a missing piece of, of American cult of American 20th century culture. I, I saw somebody the other day on Twitter. I'm sorry, it's called X now. Yeah. Um, uh, somebody, I believe from Japan, uh, posted about the uh, collection called Musics of Connie Converses that was just released last week. I think it was officially released for the first time. And this is a collection that she herself recorded in 1956 while living in Harlem it represented to her the best of her guitar songs, plus a few other things, odds and ends. And she sequenced it. She titled it Musics with a CKS at the end. And she sent it to her brother. Um, and it has twice as many uh, songs as the number of songs that were on How Sad, How Lovely, which is the last major, the last and only other Connie Converse major release from 2009. Right. So this suddenly becomes the definitive Connie Converse album as soon as it's released. And somebody posted um, on X uh, something in another language. I think it was Japanese. And when I hit, when I clicked translate tweet, it said something along the lines of this is a, is a, uh, now I'm going to forget exactly how they put it, but it, the the set the the basic the gist of it was this represents a major um, new. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to articulate what they said. Uh, they were talking about how significant it was, and that it it was basically what I was trying to say a second ago, which is that it's a major piece of American musical history, yeah. and it's been lost until now, and and it hasn't even been lost because it was never had American culture never had it to lose it. So it, it now exists. And it's like, we have to go back in time and insert it into our own cultural history because it's so important and it's been missing. And now we have it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, no, that, uh, that, that totally makes sense. Um, I, like for, for myself, I mean, I, I know I've been, my girlfriend and I have been playing the album, uh, how sad, how lovely quite a bit the last few days as I've been sort of preparing for this. And I mean, she had no exposure to Connie Converse before. And, um, yeah, I mean, she, she really can't get a uh, talking like you 
you know, out of, out of her head. And, and it, there is something that just grabs a person. Um, it's, it's, it's unreal. Uh, and okay. I found the tweet. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was going to bother me. Uh, uh, a miraculous country folks. So, well, this is, so this is a bad translation done by Twitter slash X. Okay. Uh, a new reference point in music history is how this person put it. That's what it is. It's a new reference point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like when I listen, I hear kind of like a, it almost, her, her vocal almost sounds like a, like almost like a church hymn or, or something, but there's like every, but it's coupled with like every man lyrics. And I I don't know. There's just, again, I, I, there's a real uniqueness to it. And I mean, talk about earworm, uh, when I like it, I like it when that talking like you ends, and then I don't know if it's Gene Deitch at the end that's like, uh, so so tell me about that. Well, like you could tell in his voice that he was really impressed by it. He's like, but how did that one come together? Like he, he you know, he was kind of stunned by it, and it sounded like it anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, for any listener that hasn't uh, uh, heard the music yet, please go and. Uh, Listen to those albums we just referenced. Um, How Sad, How Lovely is the one from 2009. Um, So another thing, uh, Howard, that I wanted to talk about was like something like on a personal level, I kind of gravitate toward these stories like these, for lack of a better term, like outsider artists. I kind of, um, I feel a bit of an affinity toward them just because personally, um, like, you know, Connie said the thing about not feeling like she could plug into society. And I don't know, I've, I've always felt a little bit like that, you know, a little bit of social anxiety, uh, a little bit of like, yeah, do I really fit? Um, did you like, do you see yourself or, or do you see yourself in, in some of Connie's story or was it just specifically the music that drew you to, to her? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I I would like to say that I'm a completely um, well-adjusted member of society uh, and that I understand popular culture and the things that a lot of people seem to get uh, excited about. But I, I don't understand those things. And I, I, I often feel that I am outside of the mainstream, um, like you. And... Um, yeah, the mainstream has never really had a lot of appeal to me. I shouldn't say even appeal. It's just like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand what a lot of people are talking about when they, um, are excited about blockbuster movies and hit shows and the things that are very popular, uh, on the radio or on whatever format people are streaming their music or the things that people are posting online. Um, yeah, I often feel like I don't fit in with a lot of that stuff. Um, and I know that I'm not unique in that way. There are a lot of us that feel that way. And I think Connie Converse is, is one of us in that way. I think she, she didn't quite understand what people were thinking in terms of uh, popular culture in the 1950s which is why her music doesn't sound like anything else that was being made in the 1950s, because I think she was, she was making the music that she wanted to hear. And there wasn't any of that back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, 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 it's just, I'm always interested in like, I think I, again, I heard you say something like, you know, there's, there's probably a bunch of Connie Converse's out there and um, that have never got, proper recognition and and that always seems that is always more interesting to me like people with talent that um that are kind of struggling to um come to the surface opposed to people that kind of get that bit of luck that propels them into the mainstream like it's way more interesting to me to think about somebody in their bedroom with all kinds of talent that never you know, their stuff never sees the light of day. Like, no, um, uh, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, make fun of Taylor Swift or something, but it's just, it's, 
it's more, you know, I'm not as interested in, in a megastar as I am because I know that there are people with that type of talent that will just never surface. And so that's kind of that digging, that that aspect of trying to dig for that is always interesting to me. Yes, although I I think I always try to make a point of uh, saying that just because something is obscure doesn't necessarily make it good. Connie Converse is obscure and she's really, really good. And then I think there are probably a lot of people out there right now who are very obscure who are also very good. But obscurity in itself does not equal goodness. And just the same way that um, popularity doesn't equal badness. I mean, there there are any number of people who have made it who – uh, I mean, a, a really good example is Bob Dylan, who I talk about in my book a few times. Now, Bob Dylan is a pretty weird guy <laughs> and makes, often makes very weird music, and yet he's incredibly popular. So he found a way to do it. Connie Converse, I think, would have been very happy to have been popular, but nobody wanted to make her popular. Uh, but it wasn't like she was saying, oh, I'm going to wear my obscurity as a badge of honor, and I'm going to turn my back to anybody who wants to try to make me successful. I think she would have been very happy being successful. It's just that nobody wanted to, nobody knew how to market what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, I think that's a good segue into like her kind of leaving New York city in 61, um, you know, right before the Greenwich village, uh, folk scene sort of exploded. Um, one thing I was curious about, like, I, I don't know, um, how much you know about this, but like, I was just kind of wondering what was happening in New York City musically in the 40s and 50s when when Connie was there like like did she have any contemporaries like was there anything close to what she was doing happening or do you know anything about that or I I do know some things about that and uh, the short answer is no um there were people certainly making folk music by which I mean people with guitars and banjos and fiddles were making traditional music, music that had no known composer, no known lyricist. And these were songs that were passed on from performer to performer. Sometimes the lyrics would change here and there, Um, but it was essentially traditional music. That's what folk music was. Um, People with a guitar were not making original music and performing it. Um, There was, pop music, which Connie Converse wasn't making. Um, There were, of course, blues and country artists who were writing their own music, but they were in their own sort of pockets. Um, And she didn't fit in those kinds of pockets. So I think I, I really, I take pains in the book to talk about why, in my book, to talk about why I really don't like or think that the term singer-songwriter is a useless term um, because people have been writing and singing songs for as long as people have been have had voices. Um, but I think when people, when some people talk about Connie Converse as being one of the first or even the first singer-songwriter, again, a ridiculous term, I think what they're talking about is that the sense of the of there being an I in the, the performer inserting themselves into the song, the performer of the song being the one that the song is about. That was something that people were not doing in the 40s and 50s, and Connie Converse was doing it. And that became very popular a decade later in the 60s when Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and all those people started inserting the I into the song. Um, but she was way ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. And so when she, you know, she, uh, like I said, when she left New York, um, there's no evidence that she ever uh, thought about going back? There's no evidence, no. Um, I love to think that she did think about it, but I love to think a lot of things about Connie Converse that I can't (laughs) prove. Um, so no, as far as, in terms of the reporting that I did, uh, for the research in this book, there's nothing to suggest that Connie Converse ever had a second thought once she left New York about returning to music. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, you really have to, I, I really have to, um, stop myself because there's such an, a temptation to, uh, to speculate about, you know, this, that, or, or the other, when it comes to her life, um, you know, because it's interesting, right? Like, I mean, you know, like take the, uh, you know, the nine months between Mount Holyoke and New York City that that seemingly nobody knows anything about. Like, it's it's fascinating to to um, to speculate and and whatever. But um, you know, if you don't know, I guess there's no point in really doing that. Um, when that time period between Mount Holyoke and 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 New York City, where there's no accounting, like. With when you're com- when you had conversations with Phil, her brother, um, like he had no um, theories at all uh, about about what happened then. That's correct. Um, Phil Converse told me time and again that he was her lifelong best friend and greatest champion. Uh, and yet, when I asked him about this and a number of other things, he told me he had no clue. He said they never talked about it, which was very, very difficult to believe. Um, but, you know, I reported what he told me. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, um, like, how comfortable were you um, pressing him on stuff? Or did you sort of back off when he, you know, said, I don't know anything? Or I pressed him. Um but I also know what it is to grow up in a repressive New England family. And that is the type of family that Connie Converse and Phil Converse grew up in. So, for example, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I made a rash decision at one point to book a train ticket to New Orleans, a one-way train ticket to New Orleans. I was not in good shape. Uh, in my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going through a really rough breakup. I didn't have any money. I was not getting along with my family. And so I just split. And I I ended up staying in New Orleans for a few years uh, and having a lot of indelible experiences down there. If, if, If I died tomorrow and 50 years from now, some Buddy came around and said, I'm going to write a book about Howard Fishman. Oh, his brother's still alive. I'm going to talk to his brother. They asked my brother what made me go to New Orleans. He would not be able to say why, because we've never talked about it. And my brother and I are close. Yeah. So I, I know I know what that's like. I, you know, there are certain things that are uncomfortable to talk about with family members. And I wouldn't put it past the converses to have had that sort of a relationship. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, so, so yeah, like overall you would say Phil was, you know, you, you've said he was cooperative and he wanted, um, the story told, but there was also like an air of mystery to Phil as well. Right. Only in as much as there were these big gaps that, that he didn't seem able to fill. No, No pun intended. Um, and, it was a it was a complicated uh, a process of um, you know I talked to Phil all the time I emailed with him all the time it wasn't like we had two conversations during my research for this book so I would come up against these walls again and again and again and at a certain point I had to say okay that's the that's the official story I have to accept it yeah and just re- just report what I was told. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your acknowledgments for the book that, uh, um, uh, is it Karen Lamb was your research assistant? Yes. Yeah. So so she had a lot of conversations with um, different folks too and, and, and kind of did a lot of that digging with you? Uh, Karen wasn't having conversations so much as, as finding people for me to have conversations with. So, you know, there would be some mention in a letter uh, uh, one of Connie Converse's letter would talk about uh, Gail H. Uh, and I'd email or call Karen and I'd say, 
Karen, somebody named Gail with a Y, G-A-Y-L-E, last name H, period, um, <laughs> is in Connie Converse's circle in Ann Arbor circa 1963 in a letter that also mentions blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Can we find this person? And more often than not, Karen found Gail H. And then I would call Gail and we would have the conversation. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be a big help to, uh, to huge. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Awesome. And, um, speaking of people you worked with, uh, for the book, like I know you've talked about this quite a bit, like sort of the hybrid, you know, biography, sort of personal journey, personal memoir. Um, your editor and you uh, were like, what was that relationship like? It was, it was pretty, um, you guys were on the same page for most of this. I I was given a godsend when I got John Parsley as my editor at Dutton books. Um, He understood the story immediately. He understood the way that I wanted to tell it. Uh, He gave me the feedback that I needed. Um, We were simpatico the whole way through. Yeah. Uh, really working in very close partnership and um, just with a great rapport the whole way. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I don't mean to bring up a negative thing, but I, I read this one review. It was it was a mostly positive review, but there was mention that, well, you know, biographies aren't necessarily written this way, etc. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if it works. I just got to say for myself, I, I really loved the style that you... So critics be damned. Uh, I I really enjoyed the style that you wrote this book in because I just, it really, I mean, it really just gives it a really nice personal touch. Like I I had on the program a while back, Guy Clark's biographer, Tamara Saviano, and she did a similar thing where she told Guy's story, but then she kind of um, uh, told her relationship that she had with Guy as well. And I just, um, to me, that just... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It just it makes it just gives the book a, a whole new dimension that I really enjoyed. So, um, for what it's worth, yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, I think that people who come to it with a certain kind of an expectation may find themselves perplexed at first with the structure of the book. But if you look at the book, nowhere on it does it say biography, uh, and I'm, you know it's part biography, but it's it's a Part, a lot of different things. It's an unusual kind of a book, and that's why I got—I really lucked out getting John Parsley as my editor because he let me write that kind of a book. But it's not a traditional biography, and it doesn't try to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because I guess it kind of gets thrown into that category, but you have to keep saying, "No, it's not a biography. It's a, it's a different type of book." Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the original. Working title for it was a book about Connie Converse. That was going to be the name of it, right? Um, which is basically what it is. It's not a biography of Connie Converse. It's a book about Connie Converse that includes a lot of biographical information. Yeah, I, I heard you talking on another podcast too about the cover photo, and uh, I really, um, first of all, I, I think it was a great choice. And you said you had to fight for it a little bit. Um, you said initially they just wanted her with a guitar. And um, just, yeah, another uh, example of, um, I, I don't know, I just, I just it's just a, a wonderful photo. And, and if you just see somebody with a guitar in their hand, it doesn't leave much to the imagination. But that photo, you could stare at it for a long time. And, and uh, yeah, the, the lamp and, you know, the, the lighting the cigarette. And um, there's just so much going on there. So I think that was a wonderful choice for the cover. Thank you. Yeah. I agree. Um, do you know who took that photo? Nobody knows who took it. Oh, okay. Okay. No. And that was in her Greenwich Village apartment? No, that was in her last New York residence, which was on uh, West 88th Street, uptown. Um, after she left Harlem, she moved to the Upper West Side, and that was her last known address in New York before leaving and, and going to Ann Arbor. Okay. Um, I think that photo was either 1959 or 1960. I can't remember. Okay. I see. Um, all right, Howard. Um, I'm, I'm, I, uh, we're at 45 minutes here. I'm not going to keep you all night, but I just had a couple more. Um, sure. sure. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was just wondering if uh, you could talk a little about um, just some of her like social justice advocacy. Like, I, I know um, she was a bit ahead of her time in that regard. Can you just talk about some of the causes that were sort of near and dear to her? Yeah, uh, it's one of the things that Connie Converse, I hope, will come to be recognized for is uh, she was a social justice warrior uh, in the 1960s, way ahead of her time in terms of the things that she was fighting for. She was fighting for peace. She was fighting against racism. She was fighting against police brutality. Um, uh, she was fighting for uh, greater uh, community cohesiveness, uh, basically just trying to make life better for everybody and to fight injustice where she saw it. And um, she wrote and spoke about uh, things in ways that were remarkable for the 1960s. And some of which are included in the book in the appendices, um, which I was also very happy that Dutton let me do because if, if somebody wants to read a sort of a proto Black Lives Matter manifesto, they can turn to the back of the book and read Connie Converse's Fed memo, F-E-D-D memo. Um, it's pretty extraordinary stuff. Yeah, yeah, I was really happy to see all that information in the back. Um, I still got to go through it all. I went through some of it, but um, that was a really nice touch too because um, it kind of provides the reader with that much more detail. So um, one of my favorite parts of the book too, or one of the more interesting parts was sort of... Um, I found interesting, like Gene Deitch's uh, kind of standoffishness a little bit, or or maybe his unwillingness to talk in much detail. Like, um, did you go over to Prague to specifically talk with him, or were you already going there for another reason? Or oh no, I went there to talk to Gene Deitch because he wouldn't talk to me otherwise. I literally had to beat a path to his door in Prague. Okay. And he just met you, he met you at a coffee shop or something, right? In Prague? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. So, like, was there, were you, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just my meekness project, maybe I'm just projecting my own meekness here, but were you intimidated at all by, like, his curmudgeon sort of uh, approach or, or? No, I wasn't intimidated. I was a little pissed off because I had come all that way and all he wanted to do was talk about himself. Um, and when it came time to have our second interview, when I told him I wanted to focus more on Connie Converse, he, uh, sent me a, a message saying that he was done talking and, uh, good luck with the book. So it felt, <laughs> it felt a bit, a bit like a, you know, a, a long way to go for a very little bit, but in the end, I think it was actually worthwhile because I did get a sense of who this guy was who figured so importantly according to him and her life yeah yeah um and i know there was some confusion about like how the recording took place and stuff but do you uh, do you attribute that mostly like the the just the actual recording of her music like do you attribute that completely to gene well, what I think happened was she was making the rounds in people's homes before meeting Gene Deitch, playing songs and wowing people with these songs, the likes of which nobody had ever heard before. And some of those people were in Gene Deitch's circle. And one of them was this guy, Bill Bernal, who was Gene Deitch's best friend, who then brought her to his house so that Deitch could record her properly and that so that he could have a demo that to try to shop around, to try to get her a record deal. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here a bit, but I just wanted to fit some of this in. There was a bit of a, a Canadian or an Ontario connection too, that I was kind of fascinated by. Like, um, it, it, I forget, I must've read it in the book, but uh, Connie had an affinity for Tobermory, Ontario. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And like there was some, I think I read like Phil may have mentioned that like there was some thought that maybe when she got in the Volkswagen and drove away that maybe she was headed in that direction. I don't know if that was just fanciful of, of Phil to say that or if he had some knowledge of where she went. But yes, that is something 
that uh, he hinted at. Um, uh, and it's a place that held some fascination for her. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, uh, I've never been up there myself, but it's, you know, by all accounts, it's a quite a beautiful area. So I, I guess I could see why it might mean something to her. Um, I, I guess, uh, the last thing I wanted to, to talk about was just, uh, just a little bit about her time in London. Um, so, you know, and say, I think you talked about in 1971, like there was a little bit of, there was some thought that maybe she was planning to leave or to disappear at that point. And, uh, but that is when her friends kind of gathered these funds together and uh, told her to go take a bit of a sabbatical in, in the UK. Um, can you just talk about what sort of happened during those six months? How did she spend her time? Sure. Uh, she was in London most of the time, although she did make trips to Paris and to the English countryside. Uh, she did a fair amount of sightseeing. She also did a fair amount of just being a local in London and feeling what that was like and going to the pubs and going to the laundromat and the liquor store and the grocery store. And um, I think that she hoped that it was going to be a time that she would be able to pursue some literary projects that she had had on the back burner for a long time. I think what actually ended up happening was she couldn't get started with those things for whatever reason. And in the end, it became a nice little respite for her for six months, but did not further her along the road to whatever kind of recovery she needed to have to get out of the kind of black hole that she'd landed in around 1970-71 when she had a nervous breakdown and quit her job and was in, in really rough shape. And she was at the University of Michigan when she she was working at the University of Michigan at the point that she quit her job? She was working at the Journal for Conflict Resolution which was housed at the University of Michigan, but was not part of the University of Michigan. Right. They basically, the, the university basically allowed them to be there, this place, the Center for Conflict, for Center for Research on Conflict Resolution, which published the journal that she edited. Uh, the center was allowed to be on campus, but was not a part of the university. And when the center started to get a little too radical and lefty, for the university's tastes, they booted them out. Okay, okay, I see. And and then while she was there, um, she wrote. I guess it's I guess it's an essay, but it's a pretty expansive essay called "The War of All Against All," um, which was like a. Maybe you could explain it better. Could you just talk about what exactly that was? Sure. This is an essay that she wrote on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of the journal. And the journal was uh, a cutting edge um, publication respected worldwide uh, that was devoted to the very new research on uh, peace studies, uh, conflict resolution, and trying to end war in the world. And uh, what Connie Converse did in this essay was to take, um, was to study every single article that had been published in this journal over the course of its entire first 10 years and synthesize it all into one essay, basically summarizing the entirety of thought that had gone into the study of conflict resolution in the first 10 years of this journal. Um, so I sort of unbelievably complicated task uh, uh, like a you know a dissertation times 10 for somebody that didn't even have an undergraduate degree uh, and I think it was recognized within her field as being something important and significant but um, not enough it, it didn't get the recognition it should have and I think that led to the breakdown that she had right okay okay so so yeah, like putting all that work in and then she kind of felt a little bit burnt out and, and maybe that she didn't quite get the credit she deserved for, for that. Okay. Well, she was, she was writing and publishing 
in a way that people were not accustomed to, and even today are not accustomed to, in that just like her songs, she was inserting herself into her scholarly writing. That's just not something that was done back then. And it's done a little bit now, but back then it really wasn't done. So she was doing the same thing in her scholarly writing as she was doing in her songwriting, which was to make it subjective, to, 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 to take away the boundary between herself and what she was writing. And what a beautiful thing to try to do, but yet people were not ready for it. Right. <clears throat> okay, so quits the job, heads to London, and then she comes back from London, and and in the last couple of years she was living in the attic of Phil and Jean? It's a little unclear exactly where she was living. Um, according to Phil and Jean and their kids, she was living in their attic until she disappeared. However, uh, my research revealed that she had another address during that time in a different part of Ann Arbor in what has now been um, designated as a historically African-American neighborhood um, or a historical uh, African-American neighborhood and um, was paying rent there first uh, by the week and then by the month. And there was some confusion as to when she was where. Uh, and I, again, I just reported what the things that were told to me in the book without drawing any conclusions. Yeah. And, and her relationship with her brother and Jean, her brother's wife, like that relationship kind of deteriorated a little bit in the end. It seems that way. It seems it deteriorated and it seems like it may have had to do with her alcohol consumption. Maybe it had to do with their alcohol consumption. I think alcohol played a part in it. Um, but yes, the, this former, formerly very close relationship seems to have started to fray during that time. Okay, okay. And then, uh, yeah, and, and then, you know, we kind of get the end of the book where Phil and Jean, and I can't remember the boys' names now. Um, what are their sons' names again? Uh, Tim and Peter. Tim and Peter, right. Um, and there was some confusion about who stayed back and, and on the vacation, like Phil and Jean took a vacation and there's some confusion around, did Peter stay back or did Tim stay back? And, and then Connie ultimately left while they were on vacation, right? Yeah. I think it's suffice it to say that, um, Connie Converse disappeared in August, 1974. She left notes for family and friends saying various things about what she was doing and where she was going. She was never heard from again. And the details leading up to that moment are a little hazy. And if people want to know more, you can, you know, the last chapters of the book deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, uh, again, uh, thanks for kind of... Uh, uh, helping me with my curiosity there. It's just such a fascinating story and there's a lot of, a lot to take in. And I guess lastly, no, her, her vehicle was never found. Of course. Um, she was never found. Uh, it's, it, it was a little surprising or a little to me that the, yeah, that nobody ever came across the vehicle. That was, um, a little, a little weird, but, um, but anyways, uh, that's where we're at with it. So, so, and, and your hope, um, Howard, is that, you know, by writing this, one of your goals anyways, is that, you know, more information comes out and, and you're kind of, sure. yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the secondary, um, goal, but the first goal is just to gain more attention for this remarkable woman yeah. and all the work that she did. And it's saying something about a person that, uh, the fact that they disappeared without a trace isn't even the most interesting thing about their life. Um, and that's the case with Connie Converse. I mean, what, what happened during her life to me is far more compelling than the fact that she chose to disappear. Yeah, that's really well said because, I mean, obviously somebody disappears, that's a pretty significant hook and it really grabs your attention. But then when you read the book, um, there's just so much in there about her and her life and just what a, a brilliant individual human being she was. Um, so, so talented and, and, uh, 
so yeah, I can't recommend this thing enough. Um, everybody uh, should read it. And yeah, thank you very much for talking about it. Thank you, my friend. Um, thank you again for having me. Yeah. Stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. Goodbye. Good night. See that bird sitting on my windowsill Well, he's saying whippoorwill all the night through See that brook running by my kitchen door Well, it couldn't talk no more if it was you Up that tree, there's sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling In the yard, I keep a pig or two they drop in for dinner like you used to.